Hello, and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week my guest is Axios reporter Jonathan Swan. Swan emerged in the Trump era as one of the best-sourced reporters on the White House beat. His latest reporting project for Axios, Off the Rails, as well as a hit podcast, How It Happened, chronicled the collapse of the Trump presidency, from the unsuccessful attempts to reverse the results of the election he lost, through to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by his supporters. You might also recognize Swan's face from the billion memes produced by his interview with President Trump. All jokes aside, that interview was one of the more masterful interrogations of the 45th president. I called up Swan on Friday afternoon to talk about his reporting on the Trump era, the dramatic collapse of the Trump presidency, how he plans to cover the Biden administration, and a fractured Republican Party. Jonathan Swan is a reporter for Axios. John, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I want to start with your final dispatch from the brilliant series that you've been doing on the last few months of the Trump administration and how the president and an increasingly small group of allies tried to undo the election. Um, the final report, uh, which you co-wrote with Zachary Basso, who is a uh, an editor at Axios, examined a pretty insane scene in the Oval Office with President Trump uh, in which a group of his allies outside the White House clashed with White House lawyers and advisors over the election fight. Could you tell me a little bit about that scene? Yeah, so it was, um, this is December the 18th. So just to, you know, to anchor people's minds, and this is more than a month after the election had been declared for Joe Biden and four days after the Electoral College met in every state to make it official. And this is about a month after Donald Trump's professional staff uh, concluded that the election was over, that he'd lost. And so in that intervening month, the president, because he was not hearing what he wanted to hear from his professional staff, he started to turn to an increasingly fringy conspiratorial group of lawyers and advisors who were telling him what he wanted to hear, which is, Mr. President, there is this clear path to victory. We can still do it. Um, and so it was in that context that the lawyer Sidney Powell, the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, the former CEO of Overstock.com Patrick Byrne, and a little-known former Trump administration official Emily Newman, they stroll into the Oval Office. This is the early evening, and this appointment, uh, importantly, was not on the president's official private schedule so this was done off the books so to speak but How did they just um, waltz in sorry well they they you can't just waltz in somebody mm -hmm. this was actually part of my reporting somebody arranged for them to be waved in there there are people in the white house who have theories about who did it but i couldn't nail it down to people who were theorized to have done it denied it and i could i didn't have written evidence to overturn the denial so i i don't have that detail in the story but Needless to say, somebody on Trump's staff waved them in. And so this sets the scene for a meeting that begins around 6 p.m. in the Oval Office, continues for about three hours in the Oval, becomes so heated. Like, you know, you hear like shouting matches. This really was, when I first heard accounts of this meeting, I thought it was overblown. It, it wasn't. In, if anything, it was underblown. Um, it almost descended into a physical fight at one point. General Flynn was on his feet yelling at senior White House advisors. And 
one of the senior advisors, Eric Hirschman, said, if you want to you, if you want to come over here, come over here, but otherwise, you know, sit, sit your ass down. And so, I mean, this is happening in the Oval while, while Trump's sort of watching like a spectator uh, from behind the Resolute desk. And then it continues up into his private residence, into his living room. Um, late into the night, it, it goes past midnight and it is just completely batty where Sidney Powell, Flynn and the others are trying to persuade the president to use the National Emergencies Act and other national security executive orders, particularly this executive order from 2018, to, you know, basically what they were proposing was suspending normal laws and and mobilising the US government to go around the country seizing voting machines um, and doing other things to overturn the election. I mean, this was... As close to um, as close to a serious policy discussion about imposing some form of martial law as we've probably had in this country in recent memory. The reason for the clash is that the White House advisors and lawyers like Pat Cipollone are obviously pushing back on these ideas. And you know, do you have any sense of what the pre- where the president stood? Was he sort of, uh, I mean, was he amenable to these to these ideas from these outside advisors, or yeah, did he, he side with the White House? No, mm-hmm. he was. He basically the president, as it was explained to me, the president's view was, you know, in previous episodes of this reporting, I I have shown that the president has acknowledged to his White House staff that he thinks Sidney Powell is crazy. There's a scene in one of the earlier episodes where Trump's in the Oval Office and he has this thing where when someone calls, he often puts them on speakerphone and doesn't tell them. And he's got, you know, his staff in the room listening and Trump's sort of, you know, it's just all a big game to him. So Sidney Powell calls and, and before he picks it up, you know, he says to the staff in the room, oh, she, she's, she's crazy, isn't she? And let's see what she has to say. And he, he puts her on and she starts ranting about how the Iranians are, you know, stealing votes and whatever else. And he puts her on mute and he just starts mocking her, laughing about her, how crazy she is, you know, this is sort of late November. Um, But then he appoints her, then he, you know, entrusts her with his legal strategy. So it's this sort of um, uh, bipolar thing. But, But his basic refrain in the room is, well, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but at least she's out there fighting. And, you know, you people aren't giving me any solutions. You know, why don't we try what they're saying? Because here's the thing, you know, he's basically saying, you guys, this is to his White House professional staff, you guys are offering me nothing. These guys are at least offering me a chance. You know, they're saying they have the evidence. Why not try this? And the the team is sort of pulling their hair out at this point because they've actually done the homework on a lot of these claims that Sydney Powers made. She had no evidence, nothing that could stand up in court. And at one point in the meeting, the staff secretary, the White House staff secretary, Derek Lyons, confronts Flynn and Powell. He says, "You've lost every case. I mean, you, you're pretty much every, you, you know, you've lost like sixty cases. You know, you know and, and then she says, you know, because she's got an answer for everything. She says, well, yeah, that's because all the judges are corrupt.' And Hirschman says, "That's your argument. All the judges are corrupt. What? E- even the ones that we appointed? They're, they're all corrupt." She's like, "Yes." So, I mean, this is where we're at. Um, in this sort of desperate period as Trump is barreling towards January 6th, uh, getting increasingly desperate, uh, can't 
abide his professional staff because they, at this point, are refusing to tell him that he can still overturn the election. And so you have a situation where you truly have some of the most deranged and dark conversations we've seen in the Oval Office in recent history. Mm. And, you know, that you, you pick up on a, on, a, on a case that that was the same case that like Michael Flynn was making to these lawyers. You know, you, uh, there's a part of your reporting where you said that Michael Flynn was turning around and saying, well, you guys aren't fighting. Right. And it does right. seem, you know, one thing I, I want to figure out, and uh, I'm wondering if you have any reporting on this, is that, you know, you have someone like Sidney Powell who's making these claims like, you know, that there were, that Trump got so many votes that it broke the voting machines and switched the votes to, to Joe Biden, which is just ludicrous. Do, to what extent do you think Trump actually believed the theories for the election being stolen beyond him just, you know, basically putting it as, as a show and trying to convince his supporters to believe that the election was stolen? How much do you think he actually believed that it was stolen? So my understanding from talking to a lot a large number of his advisors is over the last few months is he absolutely believes that he won the election in a landslide and that it was stolen from him. Now, the method of the steal and how it was stolen and all of that, I, I, you know, I think there's, I, I'm not convinced that he completely believes. Sidney Powell's theory is actually much more batty than what you just described. She, I mean, I've, I, in, in the course of my reporting, I obtained documents that, that she and Flynn passed on to the White House. And what these documents outline, this is her theory. She argues, she and Flynn and their crew, that a large number collection of foreign powers, China, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Venezuela's involved somehow, sure. conspired in, one of, in what was clearly the largest cyber attack in American history to intervene in our election, flip votes, hack into voting machines. And it's even more ornate than that because in their theory, and again, this is documents that that were provided, the CIA's in on it too, okay? So they were telling Trump that former CIA officials, Obama officials like John Brennan, had stolen the source code for these CIA, covert CIA programs called Hammer and Scorecard and had used somehow this code or given it to foreign countries and and that they were now using this code against America to overturn American elections. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that if you saw it on, you know, the comments page of Gateway Pundit, you would would be, okay, fair enough. But this is was documents that, that found their way to the resolute desk. Now that Trump is out of the White House, do you do you have a sense of how much power he still has over the Republican Party? I mean, is he still calling shots now that he's retreated to, to Mar-a-Lago? What do you mean by calling shots? Like, I, you know, you have so, someone like Kevin McCarthy, minority right. leader in the House, that's traveling down to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump. That signals that he still has some power over the Republican Party the fact that, you know, that they're not moving on entirely from him. I think you pair that with, with the, the signal that the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans are not going to vote to convict him. We don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, Mitch McConnell said he's going to listen to the evidence at, at the impeachment trial. Um, but it does seem like that he is still wielding some control over the Republican Party. 
And I want to know if you have any idea if this, if he's, you know, if he has some sort of control over the messaging, if he's still talking to Republican lawmakers that are high up and Republican leaders at the RNC. It, it's sort of not how he, op- like, does he have power? Of course he has power. He's the most, by, by, by far the most popular Republican in the country with Republican mm-hmm. voters. It's not even close. So of course he has power. Um, he has substantial power. But he doesn't use it in a strategic or thoughtful or methodical way. He's entirely governed by himself and his ego and and sees everything through his own aggrandizement. So it's not as if he's calling the RNC and saying, please put out this messaging plan or calling McCarthy and saying, you need to do this legislation or what. He doesn't doesn't give a hoot about that stuff it's again, it's more about loyalty tests and things like that. So where he does feel engaged is like wanting to punish people who go after him. You know, I, uh, you know, he's very, was very happy to see people like Matt Gates attack Liz Cheney, for example, after she voted to, um, voted to impeach him. But, you know, there are limits obviously, because in a private uh, secret vote, she was, she, she maintained her position in leadership. That's not to say that, um, you know, I, th- I think some people overinterpreted that result because I still think she's vulnerable in a Republican primary. Um, again, if you cross Trump, you, you're, you're still, as a Republican, not in a great position. Um, we did a poll. We ran a poll on Axios the other night where we measured among Republican voters uh, the popularity of Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and um, Liz Cheney. And Kevin McCarthy was the most popular, followed by, in terms of approval, followed by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then some distance later were Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney. So you want to know where the Republican voters are? They're much closer to many of them anyway, um, the Trump side of the party than they are to the Liz Cheney, McConnell side of the party. Do, do you see that rift between the Trumpier figures like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and then establishment types like Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell? Do you see that rift as one that is growing or do you think it's something that Republicans will be able to get under control and sort of consolidate um, behind a more um, a more sort of cohesive party going forward? Oh, I don't I don't see any signs of cohesion. Um, mm. it's a it's a the, the party is fighting it's within itself and you know there's going to be a lot of blood letting between now and 2024 and i i'm actually of the view that um they can't really coalesce properly until they have a new presidential candidate and that'll at least have a someone who can potentially be a figurehead for the next phase of the party uh, i don't see it happening until then and even then it's going to be very difficult because the base is what the base is, and you can try and wish it away. But you know, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy was torn between the activist base and the small dollar donors who were totally behind Marjorie. Well, not totally, but many of them were behind Marjorie Taylor Greene and obviously Trump and um, and the corporate donors who've been sort of the traditional fundraising base of the Republican Party, many of whom are repulsed by this sort of QAnon adjacent uh, or even embracing uh, wing of the party. So, you know, on one hand, he's got 
his members of the House, Republican House telling him, you've got to get rid of Liz Cheney. You know, she defied Trump. She's awful. Get rid of her. And he's, he's pushing back against that. And then he's got others like the corporate donors and a small minority of Republicans like House Republicans like Adam Kinzinger saying we need to sanction Marjorie Taylor Greene because she is a disgrace, you know, with all the sort of Jewish space laser conspiracies. Mm. Um, and in the end, he chose to protect both of them. And I, I suppose that that effort to keep the Republican Party together is only going to become more difficult if Trump reemerges and starts doing rallies again, um, which I think is feels like one of his only outlets now that he's been kicked off of Twitter. Um, now, I, I want to ask about your reporting a little bit. Um, you have you emerged in the Trump era as one of the better sourced reporters in Washington, D.C., and I don't want to ask you to give too much away, but I'm curious, since this is a, a media podcast, to hear how you built sources in an administration that was so kind of wild and messy and unprecedented in how it operated. Well, I've, you have to remember, I covered Trump now for five years. Mm -hmm. um, so most of it was just working my ass off. And, um, you know, I was a reporter in Australia, right? And I you know, frankly, broke quite a few stories as a political reporter in Australia. And it's the same set of skills. You work your ass off, you develop sources, you just shake the tree really, really hard and you make more calls than your competitors and you outwork them and you outreport them. I'm not saying I did that. Again, you know, I have great competitors who beat me every day, but I'm just generally whatever. I think the reason, you know, in some ways, if Hillary Clinton had a one, I would not have been coming in on a level playing field with my competitors, right? I would have been coming mm -hmm. up against reporters who, who'd known the Clintons for 10, 15 years, whatever. And the Clinton world was this hierarchical organized fortress where you had to go through gatekeepers and whatever. Trump was a free for all, right? And I was on a level playing field, like, you know, the, the grand, uh, well, the, the sort of, powerhouses of the Washington press corps didn't necessarily have a huge advantage over me because it's not like these people were Washington fixtures. They were interlopers. And, you know, when you're on a level playing field and you work your ass off, you, you'll get some stories. And it was a leaky ship. There were lots of animosities. It was easy to find the fault lines. It's easy to um, leverage information and take morsels and move it from one to the other and fact check and confirm and just do all the, parts of reporting but you know this was like this was a complete brawling free-for-all of a white house and there was no again like we're going back to sort of obama era type reporting we're seeing a white house whose press shop does nicely packaged rollouts of you know with their favorite reporter at x publication right here's our nicely gift wrapped story the trump white house didn't do that they were reacting to a constant torrent of mostly negative coverage. And so in some ways, interactions with the press shop were completely meaningless. It didn't matter. It didn't matter who the press secretary was really because you had so much of the senior staff who were constantly talking to you. And you had a president who was engaging all the time with reporters. So um, it was just a different, a different situation. And as a reporter, you just dived in and worked your butt off. 
And how are you finding reporting on, on the Biden administration so far? Has, has it been, uh, I mean, I, as you say, it's probably a completely different, different experience, but have you been able to sort of, you know, develop sources and, and, you know, do you think that there will be stories down the road there that will rival that of the Trump era? Or do you think it's going to be a, a much quieter administration? Well, I haven't really started, right? Because I, I was supposed to have started um, right after the election, but this period uh, of transition was so consequential and frankly so dark and there was an urgency to reporting on it. So I, you know, I stayed with the Trump story. Um, so I haven't really turned my focus to Biden. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of doubt there's going to be a seven-hour meeting where, um, you know, the CEO of Overstock.com is gobbling down meatballs and discussing a potential military coup. I, I just kind of think that probably won't happen uh, in the Biden White sure. House, but who knows? Maybe I'll be surprised. Um, it'd be pretty surprising. I, I think one of the saving graces, I, I would say, of, of a, a normal administration or a more normal administration, if you can call it that, is that it did feel like a lot of the the a lot of the things that happened under the Trump administration, you know, something would happen on Tuesday and reporters would scramble to cover it and it would be very random. It would be Trump woke up and decided to tweet about Iran. And by the weekend, it will not have not be a story anymore. And it feels like there were much more inconsequential stories during the Trump era. Whereas during a normal presidency, you would have, you know, far more weightier stories to cover and narratives to cover because all of it is so deliberate. Um, and that goes from policy to scandal. Um, so I do think I, I do have some hope that it'll be it'll be a, a, an interesting story, um, if not one that's sort of a five alarm fire all the time, like the Trump era was. Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's no doubt about that. You, you asked if the, if the reporting would be similar. I think it would be completely different. Um, and, you know, it's it's not normal to be covering the type the type of meeting I just uh, reported mm. on. Uh, that mm. will never. I, I assume uh, that may never happen again in my life. Uh, I'd be surprised if it did. Have we ever had a meeting like that in the Oval Office? I, I, maybe I'm not aware of one. I'm not the best student of American history. I'm a decent one. I don't think we've had a meatball slash military coup session in the yellow <laughs> Oval Room, but maybe. Maybe Teddy Roosevelt did something or Franklin. I don't know. Uh, well, there's something or, distinctly Trumpian about the Overstock CEO being a part of that group of outside advisors. Yeah, with his um, hoodie and neck gaiter, you know, ranting about how he bribed Hillary Clinton $18 million. Yep. And, and the White House staff was like, sure you did, buddy. Uh, <laughs> that was a know. part of an FBI sting, he claimed. Right? Yeah, that yeah, was my yeah. favorite part That's of, the, right. of the reporting. That's right. Did you get any any uh, blowback from him over that over that story? Have you ever have you ever spoken? Well, no. So, so I mean, he didn't comment. We obviously reached out to everyone and gave them opportunity mm -hmm. to comment uh, on how they were quoted, etc. Um, but he did. I, I I've since discovered he, he since my story he, he's put out his own version of uh, of the event, and in certain ways they intersect. I think he mentions the meatballs uh, in his version. Um, uh, his is there are some parts of his story which uh dubious including the story of how they got into the white house but um uh yeah it's it's i haven't seen him try to refute my reporting actually mm -hmm. strangely yeah I, I i don't think i haven't seen him on i know he used to appear on fox business a decent amount but i haven't seen him on recently 
Um, you know, I'd say he'd a, be a, I'd yeah. say he'd be a legally risky prospect to, to air on, you know, with the dominion yeah. lawsuits at the moment, I probably, I don't think the Fox booking department's probably no, too eager wants that to headache. have, um, to have Patrick Byrne on their air. No, particularly when you have places like Newsmax and I just saw WABC yesterday that are now airing disclaimers before Rudy Giuliani uh, and other people who have made these claims about, about Dominion and Smartmatic. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there, these, these news organizations are caught in, in, <laughs> in this odd position where they have to air these disclaimers because they don't want to get sued into the ground by the claims that they're allowing to air on their, on their uh, networks. Um, it's a weird time. The best one but, was, did you see the OAN one? They just did. Oh my God. The, the one before Mike Lindell, the MyPillow man. Phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's this sort of, you know, my pillow guy has paid for some deranged program on three hours on, on OAN. Yeah. 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 How he's got all the evidence of whatever. And the OAN disclosure was basically be prepared. You're about to be, you know, lied to on our air and we ha- and we have no responsibility for it whatsoever uh if you're listening dominion lawyers this one's on lindell you know and i, uh, I also like how the, the disclaimers are getting longer oh yeah as, as oh, the yeah. lawsuits stack up oh yeah this one was like a five minute one or something it was it was an epic disclaimer if you uh, haven't seen the the rudy giuliani one it's wabc uh the the radio station aired it before his show uh, yesterday, and it basically said that his views are not representative of WABC, and he didn't actually. No one told him that they were going to air it, and he got very frustrated mm. um, that it just aired. You know, he said he spoke to a caller, and he said, "I guess they have to warn you about me," and compared it to East Germany. Um, mm. it, it is, yeah, it's it's an it's an it's a big big time for uh, for disclaimers. But just to go back to your your sourcing um, a little bit, I, I I do wonder if building sources and getting reporting that peeled back the curtain. Uh, on the White House, did that become harder when the pandemic hit and you couldn't meet up with sources for drinks? Or did you really just hit the phones at that point? I think it would have been harder if I hadn't put in the four years beforehand of groundwork. Um, And like early in the Trump, I mean, first, like, you know, I I, I was pretty relentless. I mean, at source building, that's pretty much all I did. I mean, I filled my days with meetings and packed my schedule out weeks and weeks and weeks and just like, it was just utterly relentless, um, building, mm-hmm. constantly adding sources, building new sources, because you can't rest on your laurels. Because especially in this, in the Trump era of White House, there was such heavy turnover that you know you might have had a golden source in one part of the White House, and then they left or fired or whatever. So you just had to constantly find and and, and expand, expand. So yeah, look. It was harder because I like in-person. I'm very heavy on in-person source. Like you just get so much more out of a source in person than you do on the phone. Um, but you you adapt and you just make it work. Um, and immodestly, I think that the series we just put out is the best reporting probably that I did in the Trump era. So, um, mm. you know, you can make it work. Yeah. Now, my last question, I wanted to, to ask you about your incredibly viral interview with President Trump, um, which I think was probably the, the most memed interview uh, in modern presidential uh, history. And it was also, though, one of the best interviews uh, with Trump while he was in office. And just, I wonder, looking back now on that interview, do you like what do you think of it? Do you, do you are, are you proud of how that interview went or do you are you kind of embarrassed by the it was the most viral meme in the world? 
Um, I shouldn't say embarrassed because it was fantastic. And I think any reporter would have loved to, to been the subject of that viral meme. But like, what do you think of that, that interview looking back on it now? Well, I, 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 um, I spoke to uh, one of the South Carolina papers who were doing a profile on my, uh, my competitor, Josh Dorsey, the post. Mm. And I, I said, you know, some, I, I praised him well, very honestly uh, for his report. And in the story, they, they said, Jonathan Swan, the Axios reporter whose face made expressions or something. Like that was my, uh, that's what I'm now reduced to, the, the face meme guy, uh, uh, which I suppose is, um, is, uh, is what I'm always going to be, uh, you know, first line of my obituary. But um, no, I don't mind. Whatever, it's funny. I don't care. Um, it was, uh, I was proud of the interview. I thought it was a, like I, I worked my butt off and prepared and, um, the first time I interviewed him, I did a really lousy job and I did a much better job the second time. So yeah. Mm. Um, and you know, I haven't thought about it that much to be frank with you. I've, I've been doing other interviews and working hard and trying to prepare and, um, I haven't really reflected on that. I don't even know that I've watched it in full since it aired. I don't uh -huh. believe I have. Um, so, you know, as Trump would say, it is what it is. <laughs> All right, I think that's you're not going to plug my podcast. Oh my gosh! Wait, is this the uh, the off the rails? How it happened? How it happened? Yeah, it's like oh the gosh. best podcast ever. How come? How come you haven't plugged it? I, I I was I was unaware that it existed. Is this? I knew that off the. I assumed that off this the rails is, no, was part is, of an episodic podcast. Well, off the rails is the written side of it, mm -hmm. and the podcast version ah. is called How It Happened. And okay. there's four episodes, and it's. It's it's associated but somewhat different, and it tells the story of Trump's final days, the inside story. So, um, uh, our team well, I would is like awesome. To tell I, all I'm of doing our, for my team. It's not like all of our listeners to listen to how it happened. Uh, Jonathan Swan's podcast. You heard it from Aiden, guys. Listen to it. <laughs> Download it wherever you find your podcasts. How yes, it happened. Yes, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, all right, I think that's a good place to end it, John. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Jonathan Swan on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.